Hi, Mike Wazowski. That's Wazowski with one eye. Howdy, folks. Please keep your hands and arms inside the train. Ladies and gentlemen, the presidents of the United States. No flashbulbs, please. Our performers are temperamental and easily upset. Yes, folks, we only have high-class stuff on this show. W, w Radio, your information station. Hello, my friend, and welcome to the WW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangello, and this is show number 479, and I'm here once again not only to help you have the best possible vacation experience when you come to Walt Disney World, but I also want to try and bring you a little bit of Disney magic wherever you are with the podcast, videos, blog, live broadcasts on Facebook every Wednesday night, my books, audio tours, some of the other stuff I'm working on, and more. Again, you can find everything over at www.radio.com. So I am so excited to share my conversation with Duncan Wardle with you this week. And now while you may not recognize his name, he's the former vice president of innovation and creativity for the Walt Disney Company. In his 30-year career, he helped send Buzz Lightyear to space, build a swimming pool on Main Street USA, flew a turkey, first class, to Disneyland, and helped countless guests create lasting magical memories. And this week, we sit down to discuss everything from Disney and social media to podcasting, customer service, and so much more. And then Duncan's also going to share some tips and tactics to help inspire creativity in you and a special announcement as well. I'll then have the answer to our last Walt Disney World trivia question of the week and pose a new challenge for your chance to win a Disney prize package. Then stay tuned to the end of the show. I'm going to have announcements about announcements for my next Momentum event, next Meets of the Month in Walt Disney World and Star Wars Celebration, and more. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. Buzz, you're back! Where have you been? Uh, I'll show you. I don't get it. Huh? Oh, right. Buzz Lightyear Mission Logs! Episode 1, Blast Off! This is the mission log for my trip. Over 450 days in space. That's longer than any astronaut or cosmonaut has spent in space on a single mission. Ever. Wow. Yay! It's the space shuttle! Precisely, Rex. NASA's space shuttle is just one way to get to the International Space Station. Another way is a Russian Soyuz spacecraft. I took the shuttle. It looks like a rocket! Good eye. It is part rocket. It's also part spaceship and part airplane. Right. Ten, nine, eight. Go for maintenance to start. Seven, six. Maintenance to ignition. Four, three, two, one, zero. And liftoff of Discovery. To infinity and beyond. Look at it go! How does Disney do it? I don't mean the magic or the technology or what happens behind the scenes to create an attraction or an experience. I mean, how do they continue to create and innovate and ideate and entice and encourage us to continue to not only visit the parks, 
but stay interested and engaged in between visits as well. And today, I'm joined by somebody who for three decades helped to formulate some of the many ways Disney not only reached new and returning guests and fans in creative ways through some very unique marketing campaigns and ideas, but in doing so, increased brand loyalty to new levels. And he is a man who, among many other awards and recognitions, has been honored with the Outstanding American Citizen at the White House and across the pond where he grew up, received the Duke Edinburgh Gold Award presented by Her Majesty the Queen. Formerly the Vice President of Innovation and Creativity for the Walt Disney Company, I want to welcome Duncan Wardle to the show. Duncan, thank you so very much for joining me today. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. It was, uh, I heard you speak not too long ago, and I was fascinated by not just your presentation, by your story. And there's so much that I want to talk to you about, both from a, a Disney sort of a, a fan perspective, but also from a creativity and a marketing and entrepreneurial point of view to what you're doing now. But I want to go back to the beginning, right? Because Disney is obviously all about story. Um and from what I understand, you have always been a Disney fan since you were a child, correct? It's true. Uh, I remember um, this is when I was, gosh, I can't remember how old, but not that old. Um, and uh, a friend of my mother's went to a place called America. You know, oh, what's America? <laughs> and, and came back with a bronze key ring from a place called Disneyland. And I looked at it and that was a shrine in my room. Uh, for about two decades, it was just like, wow, this person had been to a place called Disneyland. You're like, what's Disneyland? So I went down to the travel agent and I lied. <laughs> I told them I was doing a school project because they had a Disney brochure, but it was even inside the travel agency, it was treated like the, the holy relic. And so they managed to, I managed to get hold of one of these brochures and just fascinated by it um, and just grew up. My first film was The Jungle Book. It was my fifth birthday. I sat on, in those days, the non-smoking aisle was about four feet, and the smoking aisle was about 80 feet. And so I sat there, consumed by smoke, couldn't really see the movie in particular. But remember just the, um, how, it, how it terrified you as a child. Uh, the snake just gave me nightmares for life. Um, but the, the friendship, the songs, just, I remember where I was. I remember who I sat next to, who was on my right, who was on my left. The Jungle Book was my first film. I was... I don't know, five, and just smitten ever since. And from what uh, I understand, you sort of called yourself sort of the, the, the poster child from the Toy Story film, right? You were a, a Disney fan. You loved Davy Crockett and all those. But when does it get to the point where you say, this is the company that, that I want to work for? So uh, it's true. I grew up in the land of Davy Crockett. Uh, and then one day, Neil Armstrong stood on the moon. My mother brought us downstairs. We were living in London as young children. And uh, in front of the immortal world, uh, you know, one small step for mankind, um, were the words, the immortal words repeated by my mother, which was sit down, shut up, and pay attention. Something important is about to happen. <laughs> and then Neil Armstrong went on the And so I, I instantly, you know, for me, cowboys were history, and I was going to be an astronaut. So that didn't work out. Um, and so I was at uh, University in Edinburgh, minding my own business. And uh, wanted to see if I'd been chosen for the rugby team for the weekend. And there was a picture of Mickey Mouse on the notice board. I thought, what on earth is that? So I thought, gosh. And it was a chance to meet an American. You're like, ooh, what's an American? And so this was the middle of the 80s. And I went along and they were hiring for students to come out to Epcot to work in the UK Pavilion for a year. And um, I'll never forget my first interview. I met this lovely lady called Becky. And um, 
uh, the, the presentation was over. I now walked into the room for the interview. She was seated behind the table. And as the interview finished, she stood up. Well, Becky's from Texas. She's probably six foot four, six foot five, and I'm not. And as she stood up, all I could hear inside my head was 2001 Space Odyssey playing. And I thought, oh, my God, they can't all be that big. But anyway, I was fortunate enough to get the opportunity to come out and represent the United Kingdom. So off I came. Uh, my first job with Disney, I was a barman at the Rose and Crown Pub in the middle of the 80s. I met my wife there. She was a Mexican Aztec goddess on the other side of the lake. You're like, what's a Mexican? He's like, I have no idea. You're like, what's, the ki- what's tequila? I'm like, I'm in. Like, I'm marrying a Mexican. And so, so, um, so married my wife. We were, went back to London. And um, in terms of my Disney story, I, everybody said, well, you'll never work for Disney again. You won't get back to America. And I phoned this gentleman who became my mentor and best friend for many, many years, Tony Altabelli. I phoned him every day for 27 days until his assistant got fed up. And so I got half an hour to go in and meet him. And I, I was Tony's coffee boy. That was my first job. I would uh, collate 50 press kits a day and I would get six cappuccinos from the local deli. And just loved, and just loved being part of Disney. It was uh, Disney in London then was probably 50 people. Now it's probably 3,000. Um, so started in the uh, London PR office. I loved the publicity because it was the ability to have a big idea and go sell it. You had no money. You weren't buying anything. You weren't giving anything away. It was just how might we create? And again, you're working for a brand as big as Disney. You need to be audacious, right? You need to leave people with, wow, only Disney could do that. So um, grew up through the ranks, went, uh, opened Disneyland Paris in 1992, which was probably, oh, I think my first stunt was I convinced British Airways to put a massive pair of ears on Concord because I realized that if, if you drop the nose on the Concord, it actually looked like a giant mouth. I was like, oh, I'm just going to put the ears on it. And they, and they went for it, bless them. It was a lovely picture. It went around the world. It's one of those big global pictures that you, everybody has to use. So um, did that for a few years. And then I was asked to come out and be head of PR for Walt Disney World back in the uh, mid-90s. I came out here to open Disney's Animal Kingdom, Disney Cruise Line. Um, and I remember standing in Central Park. It was a year to go to the opening of Animal Kingdom. More money than I'd ever spent on anything. We had about 2,600 children in the shape of a dinosaur, a dragon, and, um, and a lion. It was shot from a helicopter. It was a human animation stunt where each animal was the size of a football field uh, and made out of X amount of children. And they would move towards each other. And then they merged to spell out Disney's Gone Wild. And it's one of those moments in time you thought, I will never, ever do anything as big as this again. And so fast forward a few years, I uh, got the chance to do the um, Super Bowl halftime show, which was, uh, it was the Millennium Super Bowl. It was Christina Aguilera, Enrique Iglesias, Phil Collins. It was the puppets from Epcot, those enormous puppets. They were gorgeous. So we got to do the halftime show, which was just... And back in the day, this was where you didn't have a deal with uh, the NFL or the MVP. So your job was to run out onto the, the, I would say pitch, you would say field, at the end of the game, and Disney had three camera crews there, and it was who gets there first, right? It was, you know, who dares win? And so at the end of the game, it was an absolute marsh pit. People were punching each other, kicking each other, desperate to get to the MVP. There were camera crews from everywhere. And I got separated from my cameraman. And somebody came on the radio and goes, where are you? And I said, I'm on the pitch at the halfway line. <laughs> to which somebody else came on the radio and said, he means he's on the field at the 50 yard line. So I said, fine, just get the damn shot. So got the shot, got out, and then, um, then got invited to go to um, Disneyland for Disneyland's 50th. And I have to say, probably the most special year of my life and my career with Disney. 
Um, it was Disney uh, owns the heartstrings of America. Disney has been uh, had a lovely love affair with the American public for so many years. And to go steeped in history, I got to go in archives and see photographs of the only person who didn't get into Disneyland was Khrushchev. And I found out the truth behind it. Uh, the Secret Service couldn't guarantee his safety. And if you know the story of him banging his shoe at the UN the next day, that was out of frustration because his wife did get to go into Disneyland. Khrushchev did not. But everybody else <laughs> had been to Disneyland. So we found this little old lady came out of nowhere. She was um, she was the granddaughter of Herb Fitzpatrick, a Kirkpatrick, I can't remember his name, but he was the only darkroom in town in 1954. And he cut a deal with Walt. Walt, you can use my darkroom to process all your images. Any images you don't use belong to me. So that was the deal. So she had in her attic stuffed in every drawer, every facet of her house was photographs that had never, ever, ever been seen. And the deal I cut with her, I said, look, I would these need to be digitized for prosperity. I don't want to own them. I don't want to take them to Disney. These are yours and you should have them. But I want to digitize them because if anything, if you ever had a fire, this would be lost. And so as a thank you present, she gave me the only opening day press kit of, Disney, of Disneyland, July 17th, 1955. Wow. The company didn't have one. We had a couple of press releases. And when you look through it, back to the simplicity and beauty of a typed press release with typos on it and rusty staples and it only had two black and white photos. None of the marketing hype and hyperbole of today was just here are the facts. There are 16 attractions and it was very waltz, right? And so um, what I decided to do was that it was just a masterpiece and I said, look, what if we could recreate this exactly as it was on July 17th, 1955. So the Disney art department in the Yellow Shoes recreated it with all the mold in it, the rusty staples, the coffee stains. It was, it was beautiful in its simplicity. And what we decided to do, we got the Postmaster General of Anaheim to agree to put a lost-in-the-mail stamp on the envelope. Mm-hmm. We dated it. Um, it, uh, it was July 17th, 1955. But the postmark, and then we FedExed it to every news desk in town to land on April Fool's Day because the anniversary was coming about three months later. There was no pitch letter with it. There was no, we've got new attractions, there was no, we've got new rides. It was just that beauty and the simplicity of, oh my God, Disneyland 50? And the phones rang off the hook. Disneyland, when's Disneyland 50? Oh my God, I just, my favorite riders were flying saucers. These editors and deputy editors and senior editors were one six-year-old children. And you could hear it in their voice when they were pitching it. And so the editor of Life magazine, lovely guy, we were pitching him on doing the cover story, and they came out to do a cover story. And at the last minute, he said, you know, I know you're going to be disappointed, but we're going to go with the, the gardening issue on the front cover. And I said, well, yeah, I think you're a bloody idiot. And I think he, that was probably the first time anybody had told the editor of Life magazine, you're a bloody idiot. He said, I beg your pardon. I said, with all due respect, I think you're a bloody idiot. I said, look, do me a favor. I said, have somebody on your team call 10 of your readers and give them the choice of what they'd like to see on the front cover. If one of them says gardening, go with gardening. Well, I got a phone call about two hours later. He goes, we're going with Disney. <laughs> <laughs> to which I said, I said, then I retract my earlier statement. No longer a bloody year. So, but what a year of, of playing with Disney. We took 50 Autopia, this was the most audacious thing. We took 50 Autopia cars 
from Disneyland to the Indy 500 and had the Indy 500 race drive, track drive, drive them around the circuit. Now, it takes their cars less than a minute. I can't remember how many seconds to complete that circuit. It, or one or two, it took ten and a half minutes to get around the circuit. <laughs> but it was beautiful because everybody, everybody, oh, I remember Autopia. And so then we pitched the Mayor of Hollywood on uh, actually creating a, 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 a star on the Walk of Fame for Disneyland. It's still the only place in the world that has a star on the Walk of Fame. Uh, everywhere else, it's for a person, a celebrity. And then um, just a year running up with the 2004 Olympic Games, I can't remember where it was. Um, I'm trying to remember. Beijing was 2008. What was 2004? You know, I can't remember. But anyway, um, you know, Michael Phelps, it was his second big Olympics. He's breaking out, getting all the medals. And um, he came back and he said, um, we got a deal with him to swim across America. He wanted to teach kids and get kids excited about swimming. We wanted to talk about Disneyland and Disneyland's 50th anniversary. We cut a tour where we went to about 50 different towns and we swam with children in swimming pools at the YMCA with Michael and the characters. And then by the time we got to Disneyland, we were like, well, why on earth should anybody cover this? Because he's been to 50 gowns already. So I said, well, I know. <laughs> Let's build an Olympic pool down Main Street, USA. I won't tell you some of the responses I got because they weren't necessarily that polite, but they were all well meant. And so I said, no, we've got to be audacious. We are the world's number one entertainment company. And so we did. We built a swimming pool. It was the length of Main Street. And uh, I got to swim in it. First thing in the morning, I thought, damn it, I'm never going to get another chance to say I swam Main Street. <laughs> the pool was ready. I was like, I'm going down this sucker. And then Michael came with some kids. And I tell you, just the visual alone was so impactful, so audacious, so outrageous. But uh, again, it just helps inspire people that Disneyland is relevant, as relevant today as ever it was. In fact, there's a gentleman, and now I think he's still there. His name is Oscar. And now you would probably know better than I. He's the chef who works at Carnation Cafe. He was there on opening day. He lied about his age. So he was younger than he should have been to be employed in 19, July 17, 1955. He's still there. Now, I don't think he's there every day. And I don't think he works too hard either, but he puts his chef's outfit and comes out and just chats to people. And people go just to see. That's the beauty of Disneyland. It's that heritage that we all grew up with. Um, and then, um, so the media recovered the 50th till they were fed up of covering the 50th. And they sort of politely said, could you leave us alone? And I was like, no, I've got another six months to go yet, mate. So um, I asked the team, I said, well, what else does the American media have to cover, even if they don't want to? So we got into, what, this Labor Day, this Halloween, this Thanksgiving, this Christmas, and there was me, Tim O'Day, and Trish Weishart was my assistant. I said, well, tell me about Thanksgiving. I said, well, the president of the, of the United States of America pardons the turkey. I said, what? He said, oh, yes, he pardons the turkey on the lawn of the White House on Tuesday before Thanksgiving, and he's the only turkey pardoned by, uh, by the president. And I was like, oh, my God. And Disneyland is the happiest place on earth. So I said, ooh, wouldn't that make him the happiest place on earth? And they both looked at me. They both looked at me and said, don't you dare. I was like, it's a phone call. So I phoned the White House. I said, hey, what do you do with Turkey after the pardon ceremony? And they said, oh, it goes to a, a petting zoo in Virginia. It goes back to the National Turkey Federation. I didn't even know we had a National Turkey Federation. So I called uh, the president of the National Turkey Federation. I said, hey, what do you do with Turkey? And they said, oh, it goes to a petting zoo. I said, can I have it? He said, yeah. I thought. Surely there's got to be more negotiation than this. <laughs> but they agreed to give us to the turkey. But we found that um, the turkeys that go to the White House have grown to a certain size. And they have heart attacks and die quite easily. I'm like, oh, goodness. So God bless America. The turkey that goes to the White House travels with a stump double, <laughs> just in case. So um, we sent Pilgrim Mickey and some parade music up to his tent. Uh, for a couple of weeks, so to, he could acclimatize him and not worry him or stress him out when he got down to Disneyland. Um, and then um, 
we went up to the White House, and um, it was a, it was an incredible occasion because the uh, if I remember rightly, two weeks before that event, bird flu hit. I thought, oh, no, nobody's going to want to sit on a plane next to a turkey. <laughs> so I phoned a friend of mine up at United Airlines. I said, well, you couldn't, uh, you, uh, you, what can we do? So United Airlines decided to get in on it completely. So they changed their flight, mm-hmm. flight number from UA, whatever it was, 253. And it was uh, Turkey 1. That was the official Federal Aviation flight number that day. 1053 Washington, D.C. to Los Angeles. And uh, on board, because they knew they were going to have the turkeys on. Many people might be a little bit nervous, but they weren't going to get bird flu from a couple of turkeys. Um, and so they put a little postcard in everybody's seat, and it said, in honor of today's guests, who were marshmallow and yam, many turkeys, that we would be serving ham sandwiches on today's flight, not turkey sandwiches, which, again, just got everybody into the spirit of it. And then, sure enough, uh, on Thanksgiving Day, marshmallow and yam served as Grand Marshals in Disneyland's Thanksgiving Day Parade. So it's just a lot of fun. I mean, we were doing a campaign a few years back called um, Where Dreams Come True. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember becoming a U.S. citizen when we became American citizens back in, in, in 2005. And I said, gosh, you know, it was 9,000 people in the convention center in Los Angeles, no windows, no sense of occasion. And these people, most of them, had come from poverty. They had come from political oppression. They come from a site. They had come to America in search of a better life. They'd all been here for a decade. This was their dream come true. They were, there were people crying, and their children were crying. It was just such an emotional This was their dream. People still come to this country as the beacon of democracy and freedom and liberty and all it stands for. And this was such an occasion, but there was no sense of occasion. Even the flags had made in China on the mother. Guys, really? Made in China? On- <laughs> so I said, you know what? We can do better. And so for the dreams come true, I said, well, the American dream come true is the biggest one there is. I said, let's create a, a ceremony on July the 4th on Main Street, USA. We're going to have a 1,000 immigrants become U.S. citizens. We're going to have a flyover, Gloria, Samsung, the National Anthem, Lee Greenwood, Sun, something to do with I, I, uh, the land of freedom, I think it's called, where I best I know I'm free. I, anyway, I won't sing it for you because you'll do it much better than I would. But it was a very emotional occasion. The flags clearly said made in the USA. Thank you very much. Um, but and it, just, it was the sense of occasion that you just thought this was the right thing to do. And it felt good. Uh, and everybody thoroughly enjoyed it. And again, people were just crying. And it's just, it was a, um, uh, Mel Martinez spoke, who was a Cuban immigrant. And it was just a really touching day. And I'm a believer if you work for the number one entertainment company in the world, you have a responsibility. You're only there for a while. You are part of the legacy. And so while you're part of the legacy, you uh, it's on you right, to remind everybody about what a special place it is. Uh, and to do those things that everybody sort of stands and says, I can't believe you just did that. Um, and for 30 years, I did. And I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. Well, and and I love all those stories. And they actually reminded me of, and we know we both, sorry, knew Charlie Ridgway. And when he did oh. Donald Duck's 50th birthday, you know, he, oh, bring, God, yeah. he parades yeah. all those ducks down. But what I love about all those stories is that, it made me think of Walt, right? And a quote from Walt, you know, if you get a good idea, you know, dog it, keep at it. it. And yeah. I think and I think yeah. that's what what is interesting is that Disney was willing to be creative and fund it, even if they couldn't necessarily see or have a, a measurable result. Look, when you yeah, say um, Buzz Lightyear yeah. into space, it doesn't ah, translate necessarily yeah. into dollars. And I would love for you to tell that story because I love the the what I love about that story is not just the creativity, but the actual Buzz Lightyear that went into space 
and where he came oh, okay. from. So, yeah, this was for the opening of Toy Story Mania, and we were thinking of new and different ideas. And the gentleman who I really wanted to do this with, and we almost closed the deal with him, his name's Fusion Man. If you ever get a chance, check him out. Fusion Man, if you check him out online, he's flown across the Swiss Alps, he's flown across the English Channel. This was to be his first flight in the United States of America. He wears a crash helmet, he drops out of a commercial plane, he's got a rocket on his back and giant metal wings. And he, if you look at him, if you could imagine him in grey and green, you are looking at Buzz Lightyear. Oh my God, we've got to get this guy, we've got to get him to fly into Comic Con and drop fast past this. <laughs> However, at the same time, I was talking to NASA. So I went up to NASA and I said, hey, got an idea. I think you should take Buzz Lightyear into space. And you could tell that half the room loved the idea, but nobody was going to stick their head out and set the neck out and say it. Half the room wanted to pick me up running out the window. Um, but the guy at the end of the table, very John Wayne, and he goes, well, you know, if we're going to take Buzz into space, he's going to have to do a spacewalk. And I was like, oh my God, we're going to take Buzz Lightyear into space. So we created a series of games for NASA, online games, because they wanted to get children excited about the uh, STEM initiative, science, technology, engineering, and math. So a lot of fun games where they could play with Buzz Lightyear and follow his missions. So day one was about dragging items from the, into the payload bay, and if they got the right items and the right weight, the space shuttle took off. So it was great fun. So they agreed to take Buzz. Six months before launch, I got a call from Johnson Space Center, which I wasn't expecting. And he said, uh, oh, we need to have Buzz Lightyear by tomorrow at 2 o'clock. I was like, what? He goes, yes, all the deal's off. I was like, wait a minute, the shuttle doesn't go for another six months. He goes, no, we need two identical Buzz Lightyear. So I was like, why? He said, well, because we're going to take one apart, molecule by molecule. I was like, why? He says, well, because if there's an air pocket in any of his plastic, um, he could explode in space and kill an astronaut. I was like, oh, wow, didn't see that one coming. Yes, of course you can have two Buzz Lightyear. Well, this was in the day where Buzz Lightyear wasn't on the shelf every day. You know, because the Toy Story just started. There was no movie out. The attraction had yet to come. So I, we had 37 cast members in Kmart, Walmart, Target, Disney, looking for Buzz Lightyear. And he was nowhere to be seen. I was like, oh, my God, this project's going away because the whole Disney company couldn't produce a Buzz Lightyear. <laughs> so I got a call on my cell phone. And uh, all I heard was, cool and funny and beyond. I was like, oh, my God. And it was my wife, because he didn't have caller ID in those days. And I said, well, where the hell did you find it? She said, oh, it's under James's bed here. It's been there for 10 years, gathering dust. I was like, oh, my God, get him over here quicker. <laughs> so we managed to find an identical buzz, and uh, we shipped them off to Johnson Julie. And about uh, six months later, I watched as, uh, you know, as a proud parent, I'm sure they feel, I'm, I know I'm over-dramatizing, but I can't imagine what the parent of an astronaut feels like, but I felt like I was sending my boy <laughs> into space. <laughs> I tell you, it was one of the proudest moments of my life. I stood there in tears watching Buzz Lightyear go up on the space, uh, space shuttle, Discovery. He served 18 months on the space station, uh, longer than any other serving astronaut. And um, finally convinced NASA that actually, which wasn't part of the original deal, but then we were opening the other Toy Story Mania. And I thought, oh, I know, I'll just get NASA to bring Buzz home. Well, not as easy as said, but anyway, they agreed to bring him, bless them. <clears throat> they brought him back through the Earth's atmosphere. And uh, he is now at the Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C., if you want to go see him. Buzz is proudly on display in a locker with this incredible mission patch, which went around the world with him. We did a nationwide schools competition for children to design a mission patch, just, you know, like the Apollo and the Mercury and the Gemini program, just for Buzz. And it was an incredible design done by a 10-year-old boy, and that was actually produced by NASA and flown into space alongside Buzz Lightyear, and is now in the Smithsonian. 
along with James's Buzz Lightyear. <laughs> he was my son. And what I love about that is obviously not just the, the personal connection and the, and the story that you and your son are going to be able to tell forever, but, you know, there was an educational component that, that, that came with it, right? Because it, it, the way Buzz, you know, sort of speaks to uh, our wonder and, and sense of adventure. So like a lot of the things that Disney does, there is an edutainment at, uh, aspect to it. But there's something that you kept on repeating over and over again about loving the audaciousness, right? And, and the, the auda- and how audacious. And, and as an entrepreneur, I, I love that because I think so many times we question, you know, can I pull this off? And am I able to do this? What is the result going that, to be? So those, those are the ones that keep you alive. When I went into the gym and I said, hey, I've got an idea. I'm going to send Buzz Lightyear into space. Had I talked to NASA? No. Did I have a clue I could do it? Absolutely not. Was I going to give it a go? Hell yeah. And so if you don't get it, you don't get it. Nobody, you know, nobody, nobody got hurt. Nobody got injured. We're working for an entertainment company. And so I'm a believer in, um, I, I talk about this idea first, when uh, if you're not having butterflies every now and then in your stomach, you're probably doing the same thing you've done for the last six years. And that means you're not innovating because innovation is about feeling nervous. And so, but think about innovation. I, I suddenly, you know, the latest thing is everybody's got to have rapid prototyping. Oh, what's rapid prototyping? Well, it's bringing your project to life before you can actually envisage it. Well, guessing the first rapid prototyping, Walt Disney. What do you think a storyboard was? A story, because I went to the Walt Disney Family Museum out in San Francisco uh, last week, beautiful museum, by the way. If anybody gets a chance to go, it's one of the best done museums. And not because I'm Disney, it's, it's, in fact, it's not owned by Disney. But it was so well portrayed, so immersive. But what I suddenly saw were these storyboards that he created for Snow White to sell it to the bank. And what, he, what, was, what was that? It's rapid prototyping. It's bringing a project to life before you can actually make it. And I thought, oh, my God, Walt was doing rapid prototyping in the 30s, and we all think it's cool and trendy now. Um, but think about you know, creating the first full-length animated feature film that everybody said adults would never go to. Think about the first uh, animated film, Al Johnson's son is, I took the new town, but the first ever theme park. Um, in fact, so I'll tell you how Disneyland came about. It was a, a tool from the uh, our innovation toolkit that I created. It's a tool that helps people innovate. And uh, it's called uh, Twist It. And uh, what you do is you just list the rules of your challenge in column one. Column two, you list the what if, what if those rules didn't apply. Column three, imagine a world where they might. So Walt, when he introduced Fantasia out in 1940, um, he went, it was a classical masterpiece. It didn't do that well financially. But Walt in 1940 went to the theater owners and said, I want it to mist in the, in the movie theater during the trip, 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 showers. I want heat pumps in during nights on a bear mountain. And the movie theater owners looked and said, well, well, that's too expensive. And the movies were only in the movie theaters for six months in those days. <laughs> That'd be a nice run to have today. But so Walt said, gosh, okay. Okay, I'm going to list all the rules of showing a movie in a movie theater. It's dark, it's dirty, it's smoky, at least in those days. I can't control the environment. He listed all the rules. And he chose one to pick, and it was, I can't control the environment. He moved it to the next comment. What if? What if that rule didn't apply? What if I could control the environment? Okay. Well, imagine a world where. Okay. Well, if I control the environment, well, I'd have to buy all the movie theaters. No. Or I'd take my movies out of the movie theaters. Oh, okay. Well, if I take my movies out of the movie theater, well, they can't be two-dimensional anymore because they fall over. Uh, so I'd have to make the characters three-dimensional. Well, if I make them three-dimensional, well, they'd need somewhere to live. But they had somewhere to live. The pirates couldn't live next to the princesses because people wouldn't be immersed in the story. Well, I'd have to create di- different lands, adventure land and fantasy land. I know. I'll call it Disneyland. 
the biggest creative invention of the 20th century came from using a very simple tool that we call Twisted. It, it's amazing, you know, when you simplify the pro- what, what is a very complicated and process down like that, uh, I, I love sort of being able to trace it back. You know, sometimes the biggest ideas come from the, oh, the simplest absolutely. ones, right? We're solving a yes. problem. So, so here's a simple one. We were launching our Twitter account at Walt Disney World ooh, how many years ago? I don't know, four, four or five years ago? Beyond mm-hmm. the answer, I can't remember. And I said, uh, well, we should launch it with 140 characters. And they looked at me and went, what? I said, no, no, 140 Disney characters. And they looked at me like, you're mad. I said, no, it's simple. You just get 140 Disney characters, put them in the shape of a hashtag, and shoot it off a crane. And we did, and it ran everywhere. Why? Because it was beautifully simple, that's why. And everybody, and it made people smile. I think people forget that we're, you know, we're, you know, in the world of big data, we're still humans. We're still mums and dads. We're still brothers and sisters. We're still small boys or small girls. And we, even as adults, we still have that child within us. We tend to forget it every now and then, but we do. And I think, you know, I think Disney's job is to put a smile on people's face. And, um, and so the, the last few years, um, I was asked to head up innovation and creativity. And at the time, I didn't have a clue what it was. Um, and so I went on to different courses. And, and I just found that it's, you know, design thinking. And it was for the doers. Or it was very inspirational, very motivational, but it wasn't tangible for people. I said, look, if we're going to make innovation creativity work for a big culture, you have to make it tangible. And so I spent a couple of years designing an innovation toolkit, which is uh, about nine behaviors and about 14 different tools that people can use, just like the twisted one that I just described. And it's amazing how it gets people to different places. So, for example, uh, if I told you, Lou, I need you to be more playful. When you're ideating, people look at me and say, well, I can't be more playful. I'm a serious executive. I'm an entrepreneur. <laughs> well, here's thing. If I ask you where – in fact, I'll, I'll take this answer from you, Lou. Where are you and what are you doing when you get your best ideas? Right. Usually you are doing something. You are, you're, you're in the shower or you're in the car. So where are you? Yeah, right. Yeah, so you'll hear people say the shower, the car, running, walking the dog, drinking a glass of wine, maybe just about to fall asleep, maybe just about to wake up. You never hear people say – at work. Well, that's an issue. And so if I were to ask you and your listeners for a second to just close your eyes, think of the last verbal argument you were in with somebody. Now open your eyes. You've got that verbal argument in your head and you were, you were arguing, you were defending yourself and you stormed off. You said, I hate you. I'll never talk to you again. And you walked down the path and maybe out the door of the office, maybe got a, walked across the street, went into a Starbucks, sat down, grabbed a coffee, you're sitting there in the armchair about five minutes later, what just popped into your head? I know what just popped into your head. The killer one-liner that you wish you'd used during the argument. <laughs> and you oh, God, if only I'd have said that. Oh, if I'd have said that, I'd have nailed it. And people get frustrated. And you, and you ask them, have you ever delivered the killer one-liner during the argument? No. Will you ever? No. Why? Because being in an argument, actually, it's actually like being in the office. Your brain is in what I call busy data. It's making decisions. It's, uh, it's checking emails. It's going to presentations. And you hear people say, I don't have time to think. And it's, it's, you need to get people to 87% of your brain is subconscious and 13% is conscious. Now, that 13% gets you through the day. It may, helps you make decisions, do your emails, do your presentations, schedule your diaries. But if you can't come up with a killer one-liner, the big idea, because you're stressed, then I need to get you into a playful state and we do things called energizers to get people into it. But I'm not advocating for people to be playful of every minute of every day. 
Um, but there are ways of getting people playful uh, where they can. So, for example, you know, when you're a child, if you've got a big Christmas present uh, that came in a giant box, I guarantee you, I'm sure you and all your listeners took the present out of the box and spent the rest of the day playing with the box. Why? Because <laughs> the box could be anything. Because wh- why? Because the box could be a fort, it could be a castle, it could be a bicycle, it could be a spaceship. And it was because you were playful. And so, um, there's actually a different brain state called Thoughtful Fatal, which is actually used by quite a lot of very entrepreneurial innovators. Um, uh, Thomas Edison in the 20th century had more patented inventions in the patent hall than anybody else. He would fall asleep on his armchair. He'd put a penny between his knees and a tin on the floor. As he would fall asleep, his muscles would relax. The penny would uh, drop onto the tray. He would wake up. He would write down whatever he was thinking. And it, that's where the expression, where the penny drops comes from, where that eureka moment when you get the big idea. And he would write down all his ideas, and he came up with more inventions than anybody else. Dali, Salvador Dali used it. He would fall asleep on his paintbrush. Just as he would nod off, he would fall over, and he would sketch whatever he was dreaming, which says a lot about Salvador Dali's dreams. However, <laughs> not, an unsuccessful, not an unsuccessful creative artist by any stretch of the imagination. And then there's a, another phase called Dreaming Delta. It's that phase late at night. Well, actually, thoughtful theater. For those of you who said to yourselves just now when I asked you, where are you when you get best ideas? A lot of people say just, oh, I was just about to nod off the sleep. I was just about to wake up. Keep a notepad by the bed. Mm-hmm. You'd be amazed because uh, it's very important. And it's very important because the next phase is dreaming delta. That's that stage where you are way deep asleep. You are being chased by a, a green unicorn and a purple chicken with claws. And then just then David Beckham in a long cloth swoops in and say, wish your, we've all had the weird one, right? We've all had that dream where you wake up in the morning and think, wow, what was I smoking? Um, but, but you may have solved world peace, but you can't remember it. And that's so, so the trick is to get people into what we call amazing alpha, which is that metaphorically done back in the shower. And that's done by energizers, which are creating some fun activities. There is a science behind play, uh, which is very important. Uh, and so these are a couple of the tools that we use, if you will. I've talked about um, Twist It. I mean, another example of Twist It, which I think is one that would uh, resonate with all of us who used to go to Blockbusters. Right? Well, Reed Hastings had $130 worth of late fees at, um, at Blockbusters because, like all of us, he returned the, uh, the cassette box on a Monday morning through the letterbox only to find out his children had left the cassette inside the cushions <laughs> of the sofa. And so he got the $50 late fee on Friday when he went to pick up the next one. So he listed all the rules of going to Blockbusters. There. You had to be kind of rewind. Could never get the one you wanted on an opening day weekend. You had to drive to physical store. You had to have a membership card, etc., yeah, uh, etc. Et and you chose physical store. You looped it, moved it to the next column. What if? What if there was no physical store? Okay, imagine imagine a world where, and he he listed a world where. Okay, well if there was uh, no physical store, I'd had a huge distribution point. Okay, well if if I didn't want people to have to rewind. What could I do? Oh, I could do a streaming service. Okay. Well, if I had a streaming service, there would be no late fees because they wouldn't have to return it anywhere. Everybody would get the one they want on opening day. I call it Netflix. Goodbye, Blockbusters. Now, for those of you, and I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with the Magic Band, Magic Band started the Twisted. We started with the tour and we listed the rules of going to a Disney park. What are the rules? The parade's at three o'clock. You have to see a character. You've got to go on the big rides. There's age restrictions. I have to stand in line. And we said, what if there were no lines? And then we started to think about, okay, well, if there were no lines, then there would be no need for a front desk. With, uh, so I need something you can check me directly into my room without having to stop at front desk. 
well, then, if there's no lines, there shouldn't be a gate at the front of the park. Or what might that look like? How could I get people into the park? And then you go, oh, wait a minute. Ah, oh, if I think technology's coming on. Well, if I could create something that somebody could use as their room key, use as their theme park ticket, use as their fast pass, use to make where And suddenly you're like, wow, magic band. Oof, off you go. And so it's, 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 um, it's done two things. It's made a fantastic experience for consumers, uh, much more free time with their family. Uh, yes, of course, has it generated more revenue? Yes, of course, it's generated more revenue. But as long as there's a win-win, as long as it works for the consumer and the company, then everybody's happy. And so that came from a very simple tool. I mean, there's another one called um, We Express It, which is a very simple tool. If I were to ask you right now, in fact, I'm going to ask you, give me five things you should put in a car wash. What should I put in? In a car wash? Yeah, what should you put in a car wash? You need to have uh, water. You need soap. You need some sort of a cleaning apparatus to clean the car, something to dry the car, and... I'm, I'm, I'm That's, good. That's good. That's all good. Okay, so now, what if I open an auto spa? What could I put in an auto spa? What could you put in an auto spa? So you could do something, you can put something in there to make the experience for the person going in there better as well? Yep. You could put a barista in, you could put a masseuse in. You could put massage chairs in, you could put aromatherapy in. Suddenly, just by changing the name of the challenge, by really expressing it from car wash to auto spa, got you to a whole different place. I met somebody recently and I, who used this, and they, uh, I was, went to meet with them, and I was sitting in their office for a while downstairs, and this lovely young girl came up, and we were just chatting for a while, and she was very empathetic and kind and courteous. And I, I went upstairs and said, hey, that girl downstairs, your reception. She was fantastic. We were chatting for 20 minutes. She's a nice. He goes, we didn't have a receptionist. I thought, oh, my God, who the hell was I talking to for the last 20 minutes? And I said, oh, her name was Sarah. He goes, oh, you mean our director of first impression? Mm-hmm. And you just thought, oh, man, I wish I'd. Now, the moment you have that, I wish I thought of that, is the moment you know it's a good idea, right? And he just re-expressed her challenge. And now, instead of being a receptionist, she was director of first impression. So she owned that space and delivered on it every single day just by re-expressing the challenge. A very simple tool for people to use. And so, um, you know, we, uh, we use a variety of different behaviors. I mean, freshness. If I were to ask your audience right now, metaphorically, or, they can, or if they want to put their hands up, you're entitled to put your hands up. Uh, do you order the same drink every time you go to Starbucks? I'll bet you 80% of you, if you're honest with yourselves, has your hand up. If I asked you, do you order the same topping on your pizza every time? I'm sure 95% of you there. Or do you use the same search engine every day? Now, 100% of the answer up. Then I might say, do you sleep on the same side of the bed every night? If you're honest, you've got to put your hand up. Then I'm going to ask, even if you're in a hotel room by yourself? Yeah, there go the hands again. We're all creatures <laughs> of habit, right? Have you ever had that moment when you've driven home, you've taken the bus, the, the underground, and you've, you're, you've arrived at your house, you're looking at your apartment, you're looking at your front door, and you think, how did I get here? <laughs> well, here's, here's, yeah, it's all happened, right? Here's what happened. On your way home, your brain got bored. And when your brain gets bored, it shuts down. No fresh stimulus in, no new ideas out. And so we have what we call deliberate freshness, which, again, in your lives, everybody can have deliberate freshness. Can meet a different way tomorrow. Take a different bus, listen to a different radio station, buy a different magazine, use a different search engine, order a different drink. You'd be amazed how un- Steve Jobs was a massive believer in un- unplanned connections, uh, of bringing people together who, to have a different conversation. And one of the things you can do in your workspace is just create a coffee bar in the middle. 
and invite people or do a breakfast once a week and have people just come to a brown bag and just talk about random stuff. It's, it's about bringing people together who would not normally meet to have a conversation they wouldn't normally have. Well, at some point in the next seven days, spark a new idea for somebody. And that's the importance of freshness when you're trying to be innovative. Well, and, and sort of bringing that full circle even back to Disney, you know, one thing that, that Disney does very well is not just sort of coming up with the ideas internally, but, you know, look, going back to the simple the, the surveying of guests, right, to find out what it is that they like, what, it, what their pain points, what their problems are. One thing that the company has done, and, and understandably so, I, I say this in, in what I'll do, somewhat late to the social media game, right? We were talking about, you know, when their Twitter account came. It wasn't day one that Twitter started. It was years later. But what they've done is they have, uh, and, and I'm sure you had a, a, a big hand in this too, Use social media not just to listen to guests, but help to create what I think is the the greatest army of most loyal, passionate evangelists. Look, I don't think that there's any other company that has the most brand loyal consumers than Disney does. Maybe Apple is, is somewhat of a close second. But can you tell me sort of going back, especially to the early days when Disney was dipping their toe into the social media world, how does the guests and, and using social media play a role in generating word of mouth and, and social networking PR campaigns? Well, essentially, it's a listening post, isn't it? I mean, in the old days, you would go down, and if you lived in Britain, you'd go down to the pub and you'd listen to the local community. Now, of course, social media is, of course, now you have a communication on steroids, but you can listen to that community and you can see what they're talking about. And you can find very quickly what are the touch points, what are the lightning rods, what are the positives, what are the negatives. And then it's about choosing to engage. I had an experience recently. I found too many brands on Twitter have a, a social media response team who will respond to you in about 20 seconds, but nothing happens as a result of it because so, they can't talk to their operations team. I won't get into it, but I had a flat tire. It was a car rental company. I won't name them, but I tweeted them and they came on and they were, the social media team were fantastic, but they couldn't talk to their operations team. So nobody could come out and help me. I was like, well, so how is that beneficial? So you've got to have, you've got to be social media for the purpose. You know, you've got to be able to help people. And so by monitoring and listening in real time in the parks now and actually being able to go out and interact with the guests who's had a good or a poor experience is something we piloted at Disneyland, gosh, almost a decade ago now. And now it's moved from marketing into operations as it should because that's where you can, you know, it's about speed of service, speed of guest recovery, doing the right thing. Um, and I think also it gives you an opportunity to listen. It's the, it's the greatest barometer to, you know, I am a great believer. I wouldn't speak for Disney. I'm not with Disney anymore, but I'm a huge believer that so many brands, so many companies now have an opportunity to crowdsource, yeah. that haven't crowdsourced before, to go out and say, what would you like to see? What should our T-shirt design look like? What recipe should we serve in this restaurant to celebrate Halloween? And you'd be amazed how much input you get. And it's called the 1990 rule. 1% will actively participate. 9% will like and comment. 90% will, we call it, lurk. But they'll watch, they'll enjoy. Mm -hmm. Now, suddenly, you now know, and they'll vote, you now know the number one T-shirt design to produce. They've already told you what it is. They've already told you which favorite recipe. So if you were then to produce that, <clears throat> you, uh, my bet, it's a bet because I don't know if I've done it, is you generate significantly more revenue off that one service item just because your 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 fans, your community have already said, that's the one we want. 
And I, I encourage companies more and more to list, lean into that. A lot of companies lean away from it because they, they get worried about uh, intellectual property rights and idea submission. I argue that I think it's because they're scared. Mm-hmm. They're scared that, uh, it, well, if somebody else designs our T-shirt, we don't need somebody to design T-shirts. Uh, but again, I think it's, it's, it's a, I just think there's a massive opportunity for brands and companies to not only listen, but to engage and by engaging, actually produce products and services based on using that as a listening post. And I think you'll find a lot of companies like Disney doing that more and more. And it, it doesn't have to be a, a macro company. I mean, it could be on it. Look, from an individual, I'm a huge believer in community. I don't have listeners. I very much dislike the word fans. I have always looked at and treated people as though they are friends, not fans. And I know you, you've, you've talked about sort of the democratization of community, right? And allowing people to not just consume what a brand like Disney is pushing out in terms of content, but they can collaborate and be part of the process. And what Disney has started to really do is how I see them interacting with guests, uh, both in real life, but in social media and using some of the content that not just Disney's creating, but that the guests are creating as well, well which... The, the, yeah, because the Instagram feed at Disneyland is only guest content. Right. There are no Disney. I think I think there are a few Disney official pictures in there, but it's primarily just guest content, which I think is... And, you know, the guests snap some incredible images, and they really are. They're absolutely fantastic. Um, and I just think, it's, why not? Why not? It is this absolute community who, who love the brand, who want to participate. I think London had an opportunity at the Olympic Games when they unveiled their logo. There was uh, People hated the logo. And within 24 hours, there were about 5,000 submissions of what a logo might look like and much more iconic logos. There was one of the London Underground, which is that red circle with the blue line to it. It just said London 2012. And I was like, wow, that's it. Go with that one. <laughs> um, and, you know, because people think, you know, the local community, well, it's not my games, it's only for the wealthy, I can't get a ticket, but I have to pay taxes. Well, they could have had an opportunity to say, no, this is your games. You design the logo. Mm-hmm. You choose the logo. That takes courage. But I will tell you, I think more there is a bigger opportunity now. There's a bigger maker community coming through. There's a bigger entrepreneurial community coming through. I think that the companies would be wise uh, to, to spend more time uh, actually being brave leaning out into their communities and at least time at it. Try it. See if it works. If it doesn't work, don't try it again. It's okay. Well, it's hard because... My my bet is it would work. Right, because so many companies, especially like Disney, to give up some level of control, that's, I think, still an issue for a lot of of big brands. But when you are so protective of your IP... And of the brand, but I think you're right. The, the not just the future, but the present is allowing conversations between consumers and the brand. Yeah, no. I, look, I'm I'm a convert. I'm I'm way down the other end of the funnel. I think people should be doing it more and more. I think people hide behind the barrier, but what they really there is because it's not been done before, so they're fearful. But don't try it on a multi-million dollar idea. Try it on a t-shirt design or a recipe item. Nobody's going to go out of business over it. Right. Uh, and uh, and I'd just be amazed, you'd be amazed the level of community, the level of creativity. Uh, the, the creativity comes from all sources. I'm a great, a great believer. It is a wonderful 
quote by Ed Catmull at Peaksai, says, creativity doesn't follow job titles, it just comes from where it comes from. And um, I was amazed at the amount of creativity from everybody at the Walt Disney Company and how many different ideas popped up as a result. We bring in naive experts to sessions. I always bring in a naive expert to a session. We were designing something for uh, an piece of architecture for one of the Disney parks, and we had lots of Imagineers there, and I asked them, gave them 15 seconds to draw a house. And if I gave you 15 seconds to draw a house, I know what I'm going to get back. I'm going to get a box, a square with four windows in it. The windows will have a cross inside each one representing the window pane. It will have a door at the front in the middle of it. And it, if you've got time, you'll stick a triangle on the top and call it a roof. And when I ask you to show them all, you're all going to show me the same thing. But I also invited a chef in as my naive expert. And it, this was at Hong Kong. And he drew dim sum architecture, which if you've never seen it before, clearly, because I hadn't either, uh, were two steamed shrimp balls sitting on a wicker basket with a window and a door. A dim sum architecture. And you thought, wow, seriously? <laughs> yeah, but here's what he had done. He gave permission to the Imagineers to get out of their river of expertise and think differently. And so he gave them to, because, you know, if you think architecturally, well, it's got to have four walls, got to have a door, got a window, got a roof. Well, does it? Or might we think of more audacious architecture? And so he got into a place we couldn't have got to by themselves. And in fact, somebody stuck a post-it note on there a lot, uh, about 20 minutes later, and it said, wow, distinctly Disney, authentically Chinese. And seven years later, what was the brand proposition for Shanghai Disney? Distinctly Disney, authentically Chinese. So uh, just by having that naive expert, somebody who will ask the provocative questions, who will get you out of your river of thinking your expertise, they won't solve the challenge for you, but they will get you to think differently. And that's about innovating. That is helping people to innovate. It's about getting people out of the river of expertise and allowing them to think differently, which is not easy to do. I've designed four lateral thinking toys like the one I talked about earlier on, with its dresses, twist it. There's another one called Borrow. And so this is all you do is you look out into the world and ask yourself, where in the world has somebody already solved the challenge that I'm working on? And you borrow back the underlying principle. Speedo in the late 90s were charged by the U.S. Olympic team to make their swimmers go faster through water. So you ask the question, where in the world has somebody already solved the challenge of moving quickly through water? People will very quickly think torpedoes, speedboats, motorboats, dolphins, sharks, etc. Well, they chose sharks. They chose a bullnose shark and they just did biomimicry on it. We found if you pet a shark from nose to tail, you'll lose, uh, they're very smooth. You pet it from tail to nose, you'll lose all the skin on your hand because they have these very sharp pimples all the way along their skin, which allow them to uh, hold an air pocket underneath each pimple, which they can expand if they wish to stop on a diamond turn, as you would if you're a swimmer about to hit the wall in turn, or they can reduce their surface friction by squashing their air bubble down and they want to move quicker through water. Speedo created, they borrowed the underlying principle back, it's about one piece of swimsuit that you saw all the swimmers wear at the Sydney Olympic Games in the year 2000 and broke 18. Well, I can't, I want to say 18, but it was a lot of world records. And they were considered so innovative they were banned, which that's when you know you're being innovative. So, Duncan, we were talking about Disney in terms of the social, in terms of, of social media, and it's been really interesting to watch, just not as a as a fan, but uh, from a sort of a, a business perspective, because, you know, Disney has never really had. Uh, a face of the company, as it were. You know, you Apple had Steve Jobs. Now they have Tim Cook, and, and Virgin has Richard Branson. And I and I completely understand the reason why. But they did something interesting a number of years ago when the Disney Parks blog allowed individuals not only to just create content, but to have photos with it. And I thought that was really important because I think that went a long way 
to humanizing the the brands. And I think that because the, the people who are writing there are such fans of the company first, it really comes through and it shows that they are really kind of the, the biggest brand evangelists. How important do you think that really is? So uh, it's a fair point. Uh, Disney doesn't necessarily have a Richard Branson or a Steve Jobs, but uh, they have Mickey Mouse, which, again, is a good face for the company. Uh, but also think about you know, 96,000 full-time employees in the, in the summer at Walt Disney World, and they are the face of Disney every single day, whether it's Sarah, David, Peter, Susan, they're out there every day, eight hours a day with the guests. And so they are the face of the guests. So if you think about the ultimate social media, right, it's the time that you spend in the park with your family, enjoying it. And if you think about nine out of every 10 guest letters are not about Space Mountain or Splash Mountain or the Magic Band, they're about Sarah, David, Peter, Sally. And so the face of Disney is multiple. I mean, it's just, it's, it's the people that went the extra mile for, for everybody. But back to the, also back to the, the bloggers. I think by having that participation on both sides of the, of the business, so to speak, I think it just, it, it creates a, a, a deeper bond between consumers and brands. Um, and I think having that uh, together where people can participate together, I think is, again, that's what we talked about crowdsourcing earlier on, getting people involved in the participate. People don't want to sit back now. People want to participate in brands that they're very passionate about. And I think companies would be wise to open that avenue of opportunity up. Well, and Disney actually did that years ago, interesting sort of segue with the Moms panel, where they allowed not cast members, but everyday fans to answer questions and i think uh, i think i saw you say something that on the first day they received like 10,000 applicants um believe me i uh, <laughs> I, I sat through we read them all let me tell you there was no we read them all we sat there for three or four nights overnight and uh, so it's interesting i launched the blog i launched the uh, mom's panel i launched actually we did i think we're right saying we did the first podcast in the united states of america back in disneyland in 2004 no, maybe 2003 yeah and so uh, social media mums has just taken on a life of its own in the mums panel. And it was all about the advocacy of allowing people to hear from people like them. So if I hear from another mum that it's actually okay to come with a two-year-old because there are some incredible things to do. Now they can't go on some of the tour rides, but my goodness, look at all these other things they can do. And while they still believe is such an important part that I'm, you know, that, that, that goes a million miles because it allays any fears I may have because she knows what I go for. Well, and I think it's really interesting, too, because I think it overcomes some some PR and even some advertising issues and barriers because what they've allowed people to do is not hear the messaging coming from Disney, but from their peers. Look, it's, it's one thing for Disney to say, go to Pecos Bills, it's the best hamburger on property, as opposed to somebody else saying, hey, I've been to Pecos Bills, that is where I think you should go, it's the best hamburger on property and because too they don't moderate the comments the level i, I talk all the time about authenticity and how important that is yeah. that's really no, something that's present yeah so, so wait so pecker's bills is the best hamburger on property well that's up that's you know up for debate and discussion but <laughs> okay all right <laughs> sorry i had to ask right so <laughs> I just think you're going to see social influencers for all brands become a much larger part of the mix because I think that that advocacy, and you're right, hearing from somebody like me as opposed to the brand is more likely to overcome any challenges and misperceptions I may have than hearing directly from the brand itself. And I think there are some brands that have more advocates than others. However, I would encourage any brand, they all have advocates. 
some may have more than others, but you, they'll all have passionate ones. And I think by opening up that dialogue and allowing people to speak on your behalf, you are not only reaching an audience that, yes, you can reach, but do you reach them with the same authenticity as a third-party par- uh, person? But equally, you may reach people that you, you, you alone cannot reach. Well, I think, too, what it does is it makes it no longer a one-way push of a marketing message. Right. It makes it a two-way conversation right. and shows to me as a guest that Disney is willing to listen to me, to accept my advice, to accept my input, and that I have sort of a vested interest in, in what is going to happen. No, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it, it's a, you know, you could look at it as a lot of companies look at it as a blessing and a curse. They go, well, we're delighted that everybody wants to participate, but we're not sure if we want their participation. And so, and so they don't open up as much as they should. I only see it as a blessing. If people are passionate about your brand for, and they point out what's right about it and they point out what could be fixed, I think that's a good thing. I think you can only learn from it. You can get better. You can get stronger. And, you know, you, you know, too many executives uh, in companies are tucked away in air-conditioned offices. Don't, don't get out uh, and experience the product as a consumer does each and every day. And I think it would be behooving to do so because I think only then uh, can you be more in touch with your consumer and serve them better. Absolutely. You know, you mentioned the the Disneyland podcast. I remember when, when and I knew Michael Gohagen for a long time, being sort of an old guy oh, wow. in the podcasting space. Well, sure. I haven't spoken to Michael. Michael, wow. So you've got to put me back in touch because there's somebody I would love to say hello to. I haven't, <laughs> I worked with Michael all year back in 2003, 2004 when I was out at Disneyland for three years. Yeah. And so I, that always fascinated me that. First of all, sort of how it came about, but you know, what was the why? What was the goal and the mission, and, and why it really ceased? Because obviously, as somebody who waves the podcasting flag very hard, I think this is such a powerful medium for the on-demand generation. Yeah, I can't speak to how it's why it ceased because I, I didn't even know it had ceased to be honest. Um, but the the uh, the why we got into it was you know just go back to it's in our blood. It's you know Walt used new technology. Walt didn't invent new technology. Walt used new technology. Uh, he believe it or not, by the way, I know you may not have seen this footage, but we found this when we were going through the archives for Disneyland 50th, Walt shot the opening of Disneyland on July 17, 1955 in color. Now, it wasn't seen for almost a decade afterwards because color didn't exist on television until the early 60s, on mass for consumers. Walt would always be first in technology to try something and trial something. You know, yes, we created, Disney created the audio animatronic, but, uh, and I think it's important for companies to stay on the cutting edge of how people want to be communicated with. And, and uh, you know, for example, Snapchat in the last couple of years has just blown away some of the other yeah. social media channels. And I still think there's many brands who have yet to dip their toe in the area there. And yet it's such a brand that allows you to talk directly to your consumers. IM has got much bigger than it was two or three years ago. And I still think there are brands that are hesitant to play in that space. And I would just encourage them, go in, have a go. You know, it, you're going to make mistakes. If you're not innovative, if you're not really Alan wants it, if you're not making a mistake every now and then, you're not innovating. And I think that's very true. Well, and I think that's what Disney does well. I think uh, other companies are going to learn from Disney. Look, Disney how has allowed their their cast members who are enthusiastic and smart and passionate to create content to engage consumers and and engage customers, and they're constantly 
innovating both in a social aspect and in the parks. Um, and I think it doesn't that doesn't come from a, a sense of competition. I think it, it's part of the corporate culture that started with Walt. And I think what we're seeing is a continuing trend towards a personalization of the guest experience, both online and in the parks with new technology. Where do you think that future is going in terms of continuing to keep the guests engaged in a more personal way? Here's where I hope it goes. Again, I think particularly in the uh, tourism and entertainment industry, but I say that maybe in the sports industry, actually, you know what, all industries now I think about it, I think hospitals, big data is going to become far and far and far more important in the next decade. Artificial intelligence robots are going to take away a lot of people's jobs. Mm-hmm. So you think about where artificial intelligence is going. You know, lots of companies have massive call centers. Well, could I create a virtual call center and be very transparent and create a virtual employee, give her or him a name, and they could answer you know many more questions than the actual volume of the call center could handle. And yet, I think what, what where the opportunity lies is high-tech, high-touch. Because high-tech could allow you to lay off lots of people. Yes, of course it could. But I think people want increasing personalization. And I, again, what do nine, t- uh, nine out of 10 people talk about? It's not the technology, it's the people. And I think the brand that gets it right will be the brand that finds that balance between, yes, high tech could allow me to lay off people, but how might I re-employ those people in a high touch environment to enable us to create much more personalized experiences for our guests and our consumers? I think the brand that has the courage to do that when Wall Street would ask them just to go so high tech, I think may be able to differentiate themselves from many others. Yeah, I think you're right, and I think what we might see is something I can I can envision a day in the very very near future where Disney takes advantage of some of the the AI technology where they would have a messaging bot. So if you have a guest relations based question, you can ask the bot via Facebook Messenger which will have some answers that it can create for you, but it will also allow them to directly connect you to a human being that will pick up that conversation and really give you the answers that that you want. Again, that sort of very high touch, very personal, and more importantly, an immediate response as as opposed to having to wait uh, on on hold somewhere for uh, a guest relations cast member to chat with you. Yeah, I don't disagree. I mean, I obviously don't have the definitive answer, but I think you'll see a lot of companies and brands go that route. Yeah, so so tell me about what has happened with you in your uh, in your post Disney life. What are you What are you doing now, and where can people find out more about you? So I'm probably America's youngest company. I'm about five days old. Uh, don't have a website yet, but it's coming. I've called it Ideate and Innovate using the number eight um, because I think I can help companies and individuals not only have ideas, it's easy to have ideas, but then getting them out to market and actually getting them done. That's the innovation part of it. So I've designed an innovation uh, toolkit. Uh, it's a design thinking innovation toolkit. And what I've done is take the model that IDEO uses, that Apple have used, that we created at Disney, that What If uses, and I've taken it down to the lowest common denominator so normal people can use it. Because all too often you go on these courses around innovation and creativity and design thinking, and you leave that course, you're very inspired, you're very motivated, you want to put on a superhero costume and fly out the window and save the world. And five days later, you realize, Oh, I can't remember anything I learned. I can't remember, and I haven't used anything. And so unless you can make it tangible for people, then they're not going to use it. You can't change your culture. And so all I did was take a design thinking, uh, creative problem solving process and take it down to its lowest common denominator so normal people could use it. Uh, and so the first phase is all about making sure you're working on the right thing. 
And a sort of a metaphorical story that helps support that is NASA put out a brief in the 60s and they said, we need a pen that writes in space. And sure enough, they got the space pen delivered by Fisher Industries for a couple of million dollars. And they used it in space for about 20, 30 years. It's the, it's the one that writes in zero degrees. It writes in uh, the vacuum of space upside down. And, and they used it. And then after detente and the Berlin Wall came down, they were with uh, the Russians who became the co- uh, cosmonauts. They were no longer Soviets. And they were proudly sharing all the innovations that the inside made over the last 30 years. And the Americans showed off, this is the space pen. And the Russians were like, wow, they were blown away by the space <laughs> pen. And they said, wow, we use pencils. You know, wow, well, wait a minute. So how many times in our life have we found six minutes, six days, six weeks, six months after you started working on the change? Like, Hang on a minute, we're working on the wrong thing. Because people don't take the time to challenge the challenge to begin with. And if they do, because if you start one degree off, you're going to finish 180 degrees off. And I would argue a lot of companies are guilty of that. So there's about four tools that help you not only ensure that you're working on the right challenge, but the team are aligned around it. The second set of tools allow you to go out and gather consumer insights in new and different ways to allow you to innovate. And so we'll go out and we'll meet with a weird, a deep, and a normal. A weird is somebody who has nothing to do with your challenge that may share some interesting eyes on it. A deep is somebody who works in your industry but doesn't work for you, and a normal is your consumer. You actually go out and spend time with them. And we've had some absolutely breakthrough insights that have given that gave Disney and some of my newer clients some new bases of uh, new categories, new whole new business entities to go play in. Uh, the next session uh, section is four lateral thinking tools that help people think differently. As I mentioned earlier on, our number one biggest barrier to innovation is uh, our own expertise. Our own expertise tells us, we legal won't let me do that. That's not a strategic plan fit. I'll never get the money to do it. I'll get... And so you shut, you subconsciously shutting ideas down before you're even listening to it. And these lateral thinking tools actually help stop you from doing that. And they all are designed to get you to a different place. Innovation is about getting you to a place that you couldn't have got to by yourself. And then the final set of tools help you rapid prototype and actually get it done. And this is where, if you think about the barriers to innovation that most companies face, there are really five things. One is time, time to think. And you hear people say, I don't have time to think. Two is everybody wants innovation and design thinking, but everybody has a different definition of it. And unless you can establish a common language inside an organization, you're not set up for success. Three is most companies, especially those that report to Wall Street every quarter, are risk averse. So how might we create a set of tools that allow people to take smart risks because they've got some innovative toys they can actually use? Uh, the next one is consumer insight is underused. Actually, I would argue it's ignored by a lot of people because they don't know how to go and mine it and go find it. And the tools help you do that. And the last one is this ideas get stuck, deleted, or killed as they move through the process. I think that has happened to all of us. And so we created a set of tools that enable the team to align around, yes, I've got all the ideas. Now how do I know which is the right one? And so one tool allows the team to vote anonymously uh, so that it's not just the senior person's decision, it's actually the team. And you find out uh, it's where the passion is. Because if the team aren't passionate about an idea, it's not going to get executed. And then the next tool is, well, if the first tool is uh, voting with your heart. This one is voting with your head. And it takes some very uh, easy success criteria established at the get-go and allows you to map visually one idea over the other and very quickly see which one is more likely to drive the business results that you want. And so... It's, uh, you know, I teach workshops now, half-day workshops, full-day workshops. If people want to learn the entire design thinking model, two-day workshops. Here's the, here's the guarantee that when you walk out of the workshop, you'll know how to use the tools.
And that, I think, is distinguishes it from so many other uh, courses and workshops and seminars that people go on that are very inspirational, very motivational, and, that's, and they have their place. But if I don't know what to do with it, how can I, as an entrepreneur or a business, change my business model, get out of my river of expertise, understand the consumer insight, and get the idea to execution? And that's what the innovation tool does. And so, Duncan, you speak exactly my language in terms of, look, first of all, I think that everybody has that sense of creativity and innovation in them. Sometimes they say, well, I'm not a creative person or I have this idea. I don't know how to execute. Um, That is why, and, and I don't mean this to sound like a shameless plug, but that is why I created my Momentum event in Walt Disney World because I want people to be able to come to an event not just to hear a presenter speak, but take, but because it's a workshop, they can right there on the spot, take what they've learned and start to implement it. So they don't walk away with just a notebook full of ideas. They actually start to take action. And I think there would be nobody better for this event to have to come and speak and present on some of the things that you've talked about, that you've talked about and that you've done with Disney as a brand and then ways people can implement that themselves. Um, and, and if you were to come and speak at the momentum event, um, that would be a, a thrill, not just for me, cause I've heard you speak, but I think for anybody that would be in attendance. No, I'd be thrilled. I mean, it, it's, uh, I mentioned the workshops, but I'm also doing keynote presentations and speaking now. And so, uh, I think it's, it's great. And I, I applaud you for doing a workshop. Um, you know, the speeches and the presentations, I thoroughly enjoy giving them. Uh, but I think the workshop also allows the participants to go a little bit deeper and leave with some tangible tools so they know what to do with them afterwards. And I, I applaud you for that. Absolutely. And thank you so much. I am super excited not just to watch you, but to learn from you as well and really make a positive difference in people's lives by the time that they walk out. Um, I will certainly put a link to uh, in the show notes this week to where people can find you on LinkedIn and on Twitter and on some of the other social networks. And I certainly look forward to seeing you uh, later on this year at the event and, and hopefully keeping in touch in between. Well, thank you very much. I'm genuinely on a mission now. I mean, I've been lucky enough to work for the world's most creative company for 30 years, but I still believe there are hundreds of thousands of people out there who, because of how they've been treated or how they've been talked to or the job title they carry, think they're not creative. And the truth is, we were all children. We all played with that box that was before the castle. The challenge, as Picasso said, is to maintain that level of creativity as you grow up. And I think the Innovation Toolkit allows people, it reminds them they're creative, it shows them that they're creative, and gives them the courage to go use it again. I love it. I love what you do. I love what you have done. And as a Disney fan, I am grateful for what you and obviously the team around you has done to uh, inspire that creativity and, uh, and really enhance our experience as Disney guests as well. Well, thank you very much. It's, I, it's, you know, it's, uh, we're all part of the Disney legacy for a part of our lives. Mine was 30 of the most glorious years doing the most audacious, fun, creative. I, you know, one, I think somebody once said, I don't know who, if you do what you love, you'll never work another day in your life. And so this is now chapter two for me. That was my first job, 30 years, who knew? And now I get a chance to go and help people um, and really unleash their creativity by giving them some tools that enables them to do it, build confidence and do it again. I love it. Duncan Wardle, thank you so, so much. Cool. Thank you very much, Lou. Love to chat to you.
Time for our Walt Disney World trivia question of the week, where I invite you to test your knowledge of Walt Disney World history or see how well you pay attention to the details, not just always in what you see, but sometimes in what you hear, maybe even in what you eat. And if you think you know the answer, you can enter via our online forum for a chance to win a Disney prize package. Before we get to this week's question, I'm going to go back, review last week's, and select our winner. So last week, I was over at Disney's Animal Kingdom, figuratively, not literally, and your question was about Finding Nemo the Musical, wherein we find out what finally P. Sherman of Wallaby Way's first name actually is. Now, it's not ever given in the dialogue of the screenplay or the movie. It's been referenced as Philip in some books, but director Andrew Stanton actually approved the use of his real name for the musical at Disney's Animal Kingdom. And we know from listening to the song We Swim Together that they swim in harmony, they start at dentistry, and they are the fish of Pablo Sherman DDS. So there you go. His name is Pablo. And again, thanks to the thousands of you actually that entered, got this one correct. Um, I appreciate the one of you that actually sent in the voicemail singing the song. To me, you got bonus points, but it didn't help in the actual selection process because I put all the correct entries in, randomly select one, and last week's winner is going to receive the 102 Ways to Save Money for and at Walt Disney World book, all seven of my virtual audio tours, which you can find at the shop at www.radio.com, the WW Radio Magic Band 2.0 cover, some WW Radio stickers, and I'm also going to send you the WW Radio Hot and Cold Travel Mug, not available in stores, on Amazon, or as seen on TV. And last week's winner, randomly selected, is... Eric Dixon. So, Eric, congratulations. Use use the online form. I will get your prize package out to you right away. If you played last week and didn't win, that's okay. Let's keep moving forward because here's your next chance to enter in this week's Walt Disney World Trivia Challenge. So, my favorite attraction, and by favorite, I mean it's one of a list of ten favorite attractions, is probably the Haunted Mansion. Uh, it is classic. It's quintessential Disney. I think we've all probably seen it hundreds, if not thousands of times. But how well do you really pay attention and really remember the details just from your memory? So, for example, in the stretching room, before you actually enter the attraction, we see paintings of some of their guests in their corruptible mortal state. And one of those people depicted is a young woman with a parasol on a tightrope. Tell me, what is directly below her? It's that simple. So you have until Sunday, April 9th at 11.59 p.m. to tell me what is below the ballerina with the parasol in the Haunted Ranch and Stretching Room portrait. You can go to www.radio.com, click on this week's podcast, number 479, use the online form there. He'll give me your name, your address. So if you do win, I can send you your book, your audio tours, your magic band cover, your stickers. And yes, because I love the Haunted Mansion and I love the mugs, I'm going to throw in a mug as well. So good luck. Look alive and have fun. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you so very much for taking the time to tune in this and every week. I sincerely, sincerely appreciate you. Uh, So just a couple of quick announcements. Speaking of thanks, I want to thank some new members of the WW Radio Nation family who joined up this past month, including some longtime members uh, like Joe Yorchok, Aaron Van Quill, Lisa Gilmore, Michael Nip, Gemma, 
Graziano Serrano, and my friend Bess Hour. Thank you to each and every one of you, whether you are a new member of the family or a longtime member. I really do appreciate all the help and the love and the support. And if you want to not only help the show, but get exclusive rewards every month, like scavenger hunts, access to our private Facebook group, personalized WW Radio Magic Band covers, logo gear, t-shirts, monthly care packages from Walt Disney World, exclusive live video group calls together, and lots more, please visit wdwradio.com slash support. And please also don't forget that a portion of your proceeds do go to benefit the Dream Team Project for the Make-A-Wish Foundation of America. Again, this is a completely optional thing, but a great way for you to help the show. And thanks again to all of you who are part of the nation. Uh, Don't forget too, while you are visiting the site, please check out our amazing team of blog writers and join me every Wednesday at 7.30 p.m. Eastern for WW Radio Live. I do live video broadcasts and chat both from the parks and from the home office. Whether I am taking you on an attraction with me or just wandering the parks or we're in my office playing 20 questions, you can ask me anything. But what I love most about this is that it's a two-way conversation between me and you. Again, every Wednesday night, WW Radio Live. It's actually facebook.com slash WW Radio. I'd also love to hear from you. You can call the voicemail at 407-900-WDW1. That's 407-900-9391. If you have a question, a comment, or just a hello from the parks or tell me about your current or upcoming trips, if you have a question I'm going to answer on the air, you can email me, lou at www.radio.com. Let's connect and get together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On social, I am at Lou Mangello on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest. And please be sure to like the WDW really, I talk for a living, the WDW Radio page at Facebook.com slash WDW Radio. And of course, you've heard me say it before because I mean it and believe it that while I love being able to talk with you online, nothing beats a handshake and a hug. That is why I love getting together every single month in Walt Disney World. I'm sorry that I missed March, but we're going to have not one, but two meetups in April. I am working on some dates for a meetup over at Star Wars Celebration, the weekend of April 13th through the 15th over at the Orange County Convention Center. And then the following weekend here at Walt Disney World is going to be the Star Wars Dark Side Half Marathon Running Weekend festival of fun and fools and fun and food. Uh, So I'm going to do a meetup that weekend as well. That's the weekend of the 21st through the 23rd. Please stay tuned to the Facebook page as I'll have the exact dates and location coming up this week. Um, Speaking of speaking at conferences and meetups and events, I also do a number of other meetups on the road as I travel to speak at conferences and schools. And speaking of which, nice segue, Lou, uh, you heard from Duncan this week that he is going to speak at my Momentum event again this fall. Momentum is an event that I started last year here in Walt Disney World really to help a small group of people turn what they love into what they do. Uh, I'm going to have a full announcement with details, dates, directions, discounts, and more Tuesday, uh, April 4th, uh, over at facebook.com slash I will do that live on Facebook, and then I'll also post it on my Facebook page in case you missed it. Again, this event is limited to just 50 people and then just 10 people for the Mastermind Day uh, immediately following, but it is going to be this fall in Walt Disney World, and no matter where you are on your journey, 
If you want to turn your passion into your profession, uh, I think this event would really be helpful to you. So stay tuned for details from that. Uh, Also, thanks, as always, to Mousefan Travel. They are my official and recommended travel provider. So whether you're coming down for Momentum, our Double Dip Cruise, our cruise to Alaska next year, a group event, your own event, you want to come down solo, the whole family, Becky and her team will not only get you the best possible prices, but all available discounts all at no cost to you. Thanks as always to little Timmy Foster from Celebrations Magazine. You can subscribe and order back issues at celebrationspress.com. And as always, my friend, and you, you are my friend. You allow and empower and afford me the gift of being able to do what I do and share it with you and so many other people. All I ask is that if you like the show, please help spread the word. Let others know about it. If you like this or have a favorite episode, share it on Twitter post it or share it on Facebook or in your favorite Facebook group or page and please take 30 seconds just to rate and review the show over on iTunes. Thanks to you, we have more than 1,200 five-star reviews. We hit number two overall among podcasts not too long ago. I want to thank some recent reviewers like DisneyDad0503 who says nobody does it like Lou. Ben Lawson 906 from the United Kingdom says it is life-altering. Wow, magic spreading goodness. I can't explain the feeling the show gives you It's the only thing that gets me through my days at work. Lou inspires you to follow your dreams and keep moving forward. Thanks, Lou. Wow, you've changed my life. Ben, thank you very much, brother. I'd love to hear more about how and how else I can continue to help you. NYC Dreamer 9 says the podcast is a treasure. Lou shares his joy and passion about Disney and life in general in such a genuine, natural way. You love hearing about the historical details of the podcast parks and attractions loves the pop culture references nice to know that somebody gets them peppered into the podcast loves timmy foster and the other guests not only does it help me plan for and look forward to my next trip to walt disney world but inspires me to find the joy in everyday life thank you lou your friend amanda amanda i love that and you are my friend whether we've met yet or not and g march says love love third time is a charm love this podcast the knowledge lou has is amazing would love to meet him Fantastic. All I could say, G March, the next time you come down here, please let me know. Would love to meet you as well. If you'd like to rate and review the show, just search for WW Radio on iTunes or go to www.radio.com slash iTunes. It'll give you a link right to the iTunes store. And finally, I need to just say it again and again and again one more time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I so very much appreciate you. And the gift that you have given me, which is your time, which I know is so valuable. And I thought a lot about gratitude um, over the past couple of days in the past week. And, and I am grateful for you. And I want you to be grateful for what you already have, right? Give what you can. Be grateful what you have. But never, ever stop working for what you really want. And if I could maybe help you however that way is, whether it's with the Momentum Conference or something else I can do for you, please let me know. I hope you have your best week ever. Always keep moving forward. See ya. Hey, Lou. This is Kelly Severson calling from Canton, Ohio. I just wanted to say I've listened to your podcast for years. I've loved every minute of it. I started as a sophomore in college, and I guess that puts me about seven years now listening to the podcast. <clears throat> Been through a lot with it, and I just want to say thank you for all that you do. Uh, I'm one of those Disney fanatics, and this really helps tide me over till my next trip. 
I hope you have a great day, and see you real soon. Hello, Lou Mangiello. This is Andrew Thompson from Quinnell, Canada, BC. Um, I love your podcast. You are the greatest ever. And I probably kind of missed your your podcast for being on the air and stuff. That's okay. At least you're good at what you do, and I'm hoping everything is going all right with you. I, I love your podcast, like I said, and I love it when you do the Becky voice. It's so funny. And I hope you can do a Disneyland California podcast of your best rides, foods, or whatever you want to do. I'm writing my own Disney book, too, of Disneyland. So uh, keep up the good work and talk to you later. Okay, bye. Just a quick update. This is Charlotte Rassweiler again. And my husband and I just watched Rivers of Light for the first time. And let's just say, as Disney fans, I can say it was worth the wait. So everybody, go check it out whenever you possibly can. It was unbelievable, a tearjerker in all of the best ways, and I guarantee you, you're all going to love it. So thanks for everything, Lou, and I hope everybody is having a magical week. Okay, bye. Hello, this is Camille from Tucson, Arizona. I've been listening to your show for about a year and a half, and I'm actually catching up from episode zero, and I just listened to episode 200. So congratulations. I know you're much further than that, actually, in the current day. I figure I will give the show a call every 100 episodes and give you congratulations. I took a 48-hour road trip to Disneyland, and I'm on my way home. It was so much fun. Lou, thank you so much for your great show. I just love all the information, all of your positivity, and I can tell from all of your guests and friends that appear on the show, too. You guys are just such a great group. I really appreciate everything you do, and have a great day. Thank you. Bye. Lou, this is Ryan calling from Portland, Oregon. Dude, where have you been, man, all my life? I can't believe I just discovered you. I'm a big Disney man. I live out in Portland, Oregon here. Uh, first Disney experience, 1984. Uh, first Disney World experience, 1992. Uh, just love your podcast. I may have accidentally binge listened to like 40 or 50 of your podcasts over the last month here. But anyways, the reason I called was because my wife and I uh, were celebrating our 17th wedding anniversary. And, of course, we had to go to Shanghai Disney. Um, wow, dude. We had an amazing time. I can't wait to hear your own feedback from when you, uh, when you go. Um, hey, wanted to give you a couple of things about it. I'm a thrill ride guy, so, you know, I like to use some Space Mountain and, and things like that. And so I was expecting, like, Tron to be my all-time favorite ride there. Of course, and it, it was great. Don't get me wrong. But holy smokes, pirates. Oh, just incredible, dude. I, I, I can't believe I'm saying that. I mean, I, I pretty much want pirates to take a little nap and take a rest off the old feet, you know. No way, man. We wrote it again and again as many times as we could go uh, there in Shanghai. Amazing. Biggest wow moment? Not kidding you. And again, I can't believe I'm saying this, but um, totally the fireworks. Amazing what they do at the castle. I've never seen them light it up like this before. And uh, just awesome. And the, the display and, and the fireworks and everything they do, um, I, I can't wait to hear from you and your listeners kind of what's going on uh, in Shanghai when you guys go for your visit. So, anyways, hey, man, I'm heading down in May and in November to Disney World. I'm hoping I can actually meet you and get the much coveted. Uh, Hello and good afternoon, Lou. It is Justin, Fox member and part of the Disney Springs team. I just wanted to say a happy 10th anniversary to your podcast. 
and many more. And uh, hopefully to get to see you real soon, soon in the next couple of weeks, here at the at our next meeting of the month as well. So I'll see you in the next couple of days. Keep doing what you do with the podcast for your 10th anniversary and many more. Have a nice weekend, Lou, and hope to see you again very soon. Goodbye, Lou. Hey, Lou. It's Rachel from Westminster, Maryland. Um, I called, I guess, a couple days ago, let you know that I was here for my first solo trip, and uh, now I'm sitting over uh, in the courtyard getting ready to watch Wishes, and I just had my first full day in the Magic Kingdom all by myself, and it was awesome. I had a great time kind of just doing whatever I wanted to do. I could stop and take as many pictures as I wanted. I could go eat where I wanted. I just kind of let the wind take me where I wanted, and it was amazing. So uh, I just thought I'd share that with you, and uh hope you're having a good day. Thanks for everything, Lou. Bye. You've got a How do you get on the station? You get there through a process called a rendezvous. Rendezvous? Rendezvous. It's French for showing up the right place at the right time. <laughs> That's right, Ham. Through a series of complicated maneuvers. Wow, Buzz, you're actually in space. How fun! <laughs> well, yes, it was fun, but space cargo duty isn't all about fun and games, Rex. Some of my fellow crew members like to say life in space has the feel of a campout. Oh, I love campouts! Except the sleeping bags are strapped to the walls, and you can't make delicious hot schmoes. Uh, that's s'mores, Buzz. Oh, right. <laughs> if you want to know more, you can visit this NASA website. Buzz Lightyear, a real space ranger.